Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Ellie Honick is a former state and federal prosecutor with extensive experience leading and managing criminal trials and appeals. As a state prosecutor in New Jersey and a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, Ellie directed major criminal cases against street gangs, drug trafficking organizations, illegal firearms traffickers, corrupt public officials, child predators, and white-collar criminals. Ellie also serves as a Rutgers University scholar and is a CNN legal analyst with a regular Sunday feature with Anna Cabrera called Cross-Examine. Ellie Honick, welcome back to Words Matter. Thank you, Joe. Always good to be with you. We'll have our green room conversations only in public. Now. Yes, and now people, people, <laughs> people can listen to what we talk about at 530 in the morning in the green room. Let me start, uh, obviously, with impeachment. This is a somewhat distorted process because the Department of Justice has a uh, policy of not indicting a president. So let's pretend for a second that President Trump is Mayor Trump. He's the mayor of New York City. And he has uh, reached out to other municipalities and other countries to look for dirt on uh, his political opponents, you know, whoever the Democrat running for mayor is. Applying the law, what crimes has he committed, if any? So I see three potential crimes here. We'll run through them. But I do feel obligated to point out that impeachment does not require a crime. We, we know that, but I think it's important to continue repeating that for the public because I do think that's one of the ways that the president and others dodged a bullet on Robert Mueller because Mueller did not decisively say, I find that he committed a crime. He, he was ambiguous, but you do not need an, a crime, I don't believe, in order to impeach, which I think we'll get to later. So I see three primary federal crimes here that could apply to based on what we know. And most of these are really just based off the call transcript summary or whatever it is. The first one is bribery. And this has become sort of the key Trump defender rallying point, which is no quid pro quo, no quid pro quo. So let me say a couple things. First of all, bribery essentially means an illicit exchange of one thing for another. And if you're a public official, you're exchanging some public favor in order for some personal benefit. The quid pro quo notion, first of all, that term, it's some Latin term, this for that, but it's not in the actual law. In fact, what the actual law says is a direct or indirect agreement. So you can use your human common sense when you look at a conversation and say, what are they really communicating here? And to me, when you look at that call between President Trump and the president of Ukraine, the July 25th call, that is about as close to a quid pro quo as you will ever see in real life. And to me, the key phrase is right after discussing the foreign aid and the Ukrainian president Zelensky is talking about how important it is and how they're about to buy more missiles. And the president says, I want you to do us a favor, though. And that word, though, is so important. One of one of our viewers actually pointed out to me through a question that he submitted. Think about this in the, the usage of the word, though. Let's say a teenager said, Mom, I need five bucks. And mom said, I need you to do the dishes, though, right, though ties the demand to the ask. And so 
I think there's a strong case there that there's a quid pro quo. Now, the text that recently came out, I think, add to the notion of a quid pro quo. Now, it's not the president speaking in those texts. He doesn't text. Imagine if he did. He doesn't text. But it's people who are real insiders who understood what was going on. And boy, do they spell it out. They said at one point conditioned on. Right. I think it's the White House visit is conditioned on the delivery of the foreign aid. So I think you have a pretty strong case there for quid pro quo. If you're in front of a grand jury uh, looking uh, for an indictment, you're going to use the transcript or the summary transcript and these texts to lay out how. Uh, So I would start with the transcript itself. I would try to, well, you probably couldn't, could not compel testimony from either the president who would be your target. You can't compel them to testify. If it was the mayor scenario, I'd try to flip one of them against the other. You're not going to flip President Zemlansky or President Trump. And then I think I would want to call the people you see texting, the insiders, to explain the context around this conversation. So in addition to bribery, what, what other yeah. crimes? Then there's extortion, which is sort of the flip side of bribery. The way The way I simplify it is bribery is I will give you this benefit if you do this thing I want. Extortion is... I will hurt you in this way if you do not do what I want. And again, you do not need an explicit threat. And let me just, for comparison's sake, because a lot of the the no quid pro quo crowd, which by the way, I think they're losing their factual footing, especially with the text that came out. But to give you two specific examples, my old office, the Southern District of New York, tried and convicted Sheldon Silver and Dean Skelos, who were the two most powerful state level politicians in New York state after the governor. They actually had to try them twice because there was a change in the law and convicted both of them on far, far less of any sort of explicit agreement. So real world, the conversation that we've seen is far more explicit and clear than what you're going to really see in real courtrooms. And then the third potential federal crime that I see is foreign election aid, section 30121, if anyone wants to Google it. But This we're familiar with because it came up in Mueller's investigation. And essentially, it makes it a crime to, we'll break it down into three parts. One, solicit. Okay, there's a lot of soliciting, asking for something, I would say begging. Two, from a foreign national, no question, they're asking for things from Ukraine. And then three is a thing of value relating to a campaign. And so the sticking point there is thing of value. And Bill Barr apparently summarily dismissed the idea of even opening an investigation because he and the Department of Justice concluded that opening an investigation on a potential campaign opponent is not a thing of value. Now, I disagree with that. And let me say Mueller, I think, was a little bit soft on that as well. The reason Mueller let Donald Trump Jr. off the hook for the one of the reasons for the Trump Tower meeting is he said, well, OK, maybe Donald Trump Jr. was trying to get dirt on his father's electoral opponent, Hillary Clinton, but it's too hard to quantify and we can't quite say it's a thing of value. I totally disagree with that. Number one, the law says that the value just needs to be absolutely minimal. Number two, you do not have to be able to put a specific dollar and cents price tag on it. And so, first of all, the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, has come out and said that recently. They've stressed that, I think, in response to all that's going on. But just look at it as common sense. I mean, it's an argument you make to a jury. You say, does this have value? Does dirt on an opponent have value? How much do campaigns spend on oppo research? Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Of course it has value. It has extensive value. If someone solicited a foreign national for a used van... That would clearly qualify, right? So what do you think is more valuable, a used van or having your opponent under a criminal investigation? 
Yeah, I mean, if you do a fundraiser for a presidential candidate and you serve hot dogs, you have to yeah. you have to declare that I've spent $25 <laughs> on these hot dogs right. and deduct that from whatever contribution you might go against the federal limit. So right. value, I think, is easy uh, to quantify. Yeah. Let me ask you, um, and I know you spent a lot of time comparing notes with other former prosecutors. Yeah. Did you ever think we'd be talking about bribery, extortion, and uh, foreign government influence in the context of a president of the United States? Oh, my goodness. Uh, ever? Well, <laughs> Donald Trump has been in office for almost three years. So, yes, for the last couple of years, I've thought it's possible. I mean, he is a norm-breaking president. But before him, no. I mean, it would never... That kind of stuff was, was done with state senators and maybe a governor, big fish. But president, no. But this president does things his own way. And look, his whole appeal to the public is, I do things my way. I don't follow the rules. I'm a norm breaker. I'm a swamp drainer. And, and True or not. But what's really caught me by surprise is not just that he did it with Ukraine, but what, what's happened since then, the way he's come out and s- stood on the White House lawn and said, I want China to do it too. I mean, I, there's only two things I can think of for why he's doing it this way. One is he just doesn't get it and he just doesn't care. The other though is kind of like... If you, if you catch a little kid doing something sometime, like hitting his sister, and you go, what are you doing? And he just keeps hitting her because he realizes, oh, I'm caught. I have to act like I'm allowed to do this or like it's okay. So it's got to be one of those two things. But boy, is that a risky tack. Yeah, no, I, I believe firmly it's the second. I hadn't thought yeah. about it in terms of little kids hitting each other. But, <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, I've been talking at nauseam on how the White House and the Republican strategy was unsustainable because right. the facts were going to continue to undermine And what Trump has done with uh, his Thursday in front of the helicopter press conference was to find firmer footing as far as vis-a-vis what was going to come out by saying, I did it, I'd do it again, and I would extend it. Let me ask you to put on the hat of Trump's defense lawyer. What do you argue on what basis do you argue beyond politics that there's nothing wrong with this, and he's just exercising the powers that a president has to get results for America. Right. So, first of all, if, if we're talking impeachment here, I just try to hold my base together, right? I just want to get through the Senate. I have a healthy majority, and well, a healthy, they're well short of two thirds, the Democrats in the Senate. So, that would be the message I would tell them. I would say, we're batting down the hatches here. You're not saying anything. Don't go anywhere near this. Just say, I'm doing my job. I'm working on policies for the American people. Let me handle the team in court. We're going to keep everyone in line. You're going to get through this. You're going to be fine. But if, if this was a more traditional criminal setting and I had to respond, I would make that argument. He's the president. He needs to conduct foreign policy. They've tried to make this argument. Well, he's a corruption buster. He does have the right to ensure that our allies and people who are receiving foreign aid are not corrupt regimes. The problem is the facts just don't measure up with it. You look at that call. I mean, name me one case, corruption case, anywhere in the world Donald Trump has ever had an interest in other than the quote unquote case against the Bidens and Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's not like he's some Preet Bharara who was on the rampage against corruption or before he his own downfall, Elliot Spitzer or pick your famous prosecutor, Patrick Fitzgerald or whoever. This is not some anti-corruption crusader. This is a guy who's only interested in those specific cases. So, okay, wait, I'm supposed to be Trump's lawyer. I think I flipped yeah. back. <laughs> um, I, I think you need to cross-examine yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I think I would, I would fall back on a combination of that. And look, this is a guy who doesn't speak extremely precisely. And people make this kind of defense. He doesn't choose his words carefully. To some extent, when he's on the phone with foreign leaders, he's full of bluster and he's playing positions. He's playing cards. It's another foreign leader. And so he's making calculations in his head. They're not criminal. He's just trying to position 
us in the best way possible in ways that are sort of maybe you can question them, but they're not criminal. So one more question on the actual potential crimes. Yeah. Do you see um, a case for obstruction on the moving of uh, the transcripts and information from where they normally would sit to a highly secretive place that people would have trouble finding? Sure, potentially. But you have to have participated in it and have knowledge of it. So if Donald Trump was not part of this, he can't be charged with it. But if there are White House staffers who those who actually did move it and directed it be moved, it would then come down to intent. And there's really only two possible motives. One is let's keep these from investigators. Then you have obstruction. The trickier case is if it's, this is embarrassing and we don't want it getting out. Then you have to make the sort of two-step argument as a prosecutor, which you can, which is they wanted to keep this from coming out because maybe among other reasons, they thought there was a potential for a criminal investigation. One thing I do think though, I think the president's public comments recently have, have amounted to witness tampering, witness threatening, obstruction, retaliation, calling the people who provided information to a whistleblower spies and saying they ought to be treated like spies in the old days. I mean, that means executed. Yeah. And now, he's, he's talked to use the word coup. He used yeah. the word treason, uh, which. Right. And he's not literally asking for them to be executed, but it's a threatening message unmistakably. And let's remember, he's not a first time player. The Mueller report calls him out for intimidating Manafort, Flynn and Cohen. So he's on notice. So as you look around the government, the White House staff, the president's cabinet, various bit players in this, when you look back on the Nixon impeachment, everyone talks about the resignation and sort of, except for real historians, they forget that a lot of people went to jail. Right. And a lot of people did real time in jail for their participation, including the chief of staff, the chief policy person, the special counsel in the White House. As a prosecutor, how do you look at those targets How do you decide who you're trying to flip to fill in the blanks and who deserves to go to jail? Yeah, it's a great question. So first of all, let me just put a big caveat on all this. None of this is going to happen with Bill Barr as AG. He's not going to be prosecuting anyone in the inner circle of the White House. I just say that based off his own record. I have no faith in this attorney general to just do the right thing. Well, in the uh, Elizabeth Warren or right. Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, when Ellie, Hon- when Ellie Honig is the uh, attorney general, <laughs> who are you going after? Barely attorney general of my house. <laughs> um, so this is not a one man show, right? The, the promises that were made to Ukraine, the potential deals that were proposed and struck with Ukraine and the potential cover-up is going to encompass a lot of people. And when you're looking at a complex operation like this, the key is to flip people. You mentioned this, and I, this is what I used to do when I did mafia cases. Ideally, you want to flip lower people. You want to flip up the chain rather than down the chain. So it happens the other way sometimes, but you want someone who's lower in the chain who can tell you, here's people above me and here's what they ordered me to do. But you also want someone who has real access. Now, a normal scenario, you would look at the person in the Rudy Giuliani position. Footnote, it's Rudy Giuliani. So that creates a problem. But because Rudy Giuliani is really sort of the driver of all this, but on behalf of the big boss, Donald Trump, he would be an ideal person. So it would be like flipping the underboss or, or actually more precisely the, the consigliere. So I would go after Rudy. Now, Rudy's not going to flip and he's way too non-credible and unpredictable to ever bank a case. on. I would be looking at the, the people whose texts we, we recently saw, Volcker and those people, because they're inner circle enough. They know enough that they've been briefed 
either directly by the president or by people very close to the president, those texts are tough. Those t- you can't run from those texts if they're your texts. So I would try to flip them with those and, documents. And they, and they have potential criminal liability for being part of the conspiracy, I assume. It could be. Yeah, sure. If, if they're part of an effort to bribe or extort Ukraine or to obtain even if aid. Even if it's someone like you read these texts. And you see these career people and these yep. these diplomats out loud saying, we shouldn't be doing this. They know it's wrong. How do we stop this? Yep. But they do it anyway, and they are participants. Yeah. So I would assume that they are uh, – It's that's a target-rich environment for a prosecutor. Absolutely. And the best part of the text, by the way, is when, when the one guy says – we're conditioning X on Y, and he goes, he goes Call me. Yeah, <laughs> which, is, which is lawyer speak, DC speak for, yes, but shut up. Don't put it in print. What are you doing? Yes. I mean, we're going to have this conversation, but we're yeah. going to have it in a way that no one will ever find it. Yeah. yeah. And looking at the bigger picture, when you're talking about a conspiracy, the way we used to sort of explain it to juries is think about a baseball team. You're going to have your superstars. You're going to have your ace pitcher. You're going to have your shortstop, your three-hole hitter. But you also have a pinch hitter. You also have a left-handed middle reliever who comes in for two innings. Well, guess what? They're all part of the baseball team. Same way here. Even the bit players, if they know about it and participated in in it, are part of the conspiracy. Not maybe looking at as much time, but they're liable. So let's uh, shift to look at uh, Capitol Hill and... The House Intel Judiciary Oversight, but I, you know, I think Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi are driving this train. Talk a little bit about how they'll go about making this case, uh, how they'll you know use building blocks to to yep. get to the point, and uh, also talk about how prosecutors. Uh, this is an, an issue that has always interested me, being on both sides of the thing. <laughs> how do they use the media ah, to help make their case? That's a great question. So, first of all. I would ground this thing. The base of my case is going to be that transcript, that phone call, the July 25th phone call. I mean, I, I keep going back to that. I urge everybody, when, when you hear all the spin that's out there, just go back and read that transcript. It's short and it's so incriminating. The next thing I'm doing is I am focusing like a laser on that server, the secret server, where this conversation was stored and reportedly now a conversation with a similar conversation with China was stored. I mean, that's going to be the closest. And Carl Bernstein just said it recently. That is going to be the Nixon tapes of this case. Somebody is making the decision that transcript goes in that safe, so to speak, right? Move that one over to the secure server. Not this, not this, not this, but that one and that one and that one for a reason, because I believe they're all of a kind. They're all similar. They're all the president leaning on foreign leaders to do this same kind of dirt digging. So I would subpoena that. I mean, you can't, you can't send a search warrant team into the white house. If this was a mayor, I would send a search warrant team into his house, his private home. But I, I I took some risks as a prosecutor. I don't know if I would send a team of FBI agents to do a search warrant in the West Wing, uh, but who knows? But I would subpoena that. Now, we're going to have a massive subpoena battle here, I believe, because the House has been saying recently they're getting ready to serve a subpoena on the White House, and the White House is giving all indications of fighting that. And now we're going to have a showdown. And look, that could go directly to the Supreme Court, like the U.S. versus Richard Nixon case. It could be part two of that case. I don't see a distinction between this decision and the Richard Nixon dis- distinction, which was unanimous that the documents, the evidence, the tapes in that case had to go over. But the only distinction maybe is the biggest one that we have nine different justices now than we had back then. So if they're going to try to distinguish Nixon, I don't know where they're going to find it, but but they may try to. So we're going to have a big court battle over 
those tapes, I believe. So how does the inception in U.S. v. Nixon for national security play in here? Well, I mean, the White House will will almost assuredly argue national security. How do you see the court looking at that? Yeah, it's a great point, because the one thing that the Nixon court said for sure is, yes, executive privilege exists. No, it does not apply to you here, Richard Nixon. But what it's supposed to apply to is national security, military secrets. So this White House will probably try to fit within that auspice. One of the problems they've created for themselves by releasing that transcript, and I think someday we'll look back on that decision to release that transcript as a huge tactical error. Problem is they've already put that out there. And it's kind of hard to argue all these other calls, which are of a similar nature, are so sensitive that we can't turn them over, yet we handed out copies of the July 25th call. I don't know how they get past that. Let me come back to the media question. And you, even as a prosecutor, yeah. um, when, it, when it wasn't grand jury material, you use public opinion and the media as a lever. Yes. How, how would you advise House Democrats to do that in this case? So this is a little different because we are kind of tight about this as prosecutors, as criminal sure. it's, prosecutors. I mean, it's, it's illegal if it's grand jury. Yeah. But, there's- yeah. but even putting aside grand jury, we don't leak. I never knew anybody to leak. The Southern District in particular was, was a lockbox. What we do which defense lawyers don't like is sometimes these gaudy press conferences and lay out the drugs on the table and issue a statement of dope on the table. Yep. But exactly. And, and issue a strong statement about how corruption is, but that kind of thing. But let me, let me sort of look at it politically um, and assume I wasn't a prosecutor, but I was advising sort of Adam Schiff. Yes. Public opinion. Not only does it matter, I think it ultimately will be decisive because as public opinion goes, those handful of potentially uh, dispositive Republican senators will go. It reminds me of a struggle that we have all the time in trials, in criminal trials, which is the prosecutor is desperately trying to say, keep focused on the defendant and his conduct and the evidence. And the defense is over there going, look at everything else. Look at everything else. Look at the way they investigated this case. Look at it's unfair. They're picking on my guy. They made this little error. They made that little error. And we're constantly going, keep your eye on the ball. That's a very common phrase to say to a jury. And so if I if I was advising House Democrats, I would say, keep it simple. And and fortunately for them, this is a simple, understandable story. Keep it to the facts. You don't have to spin wild theories. You don't have to embellish. I actually think it was a mistake for Adam Schiff to get up at the hearing and give his embellished, annotated version of the call, which Trump has reacted very strongly to. But I I think he would have been better off to just say, I don't have to embellish this at all. I'll just read it to you straight. Yeah. And releasing the text is giving it to you straight. Yeah, exactly. You have the text. They're building their case. You You have the call. You have potentially another call. You have these texts, which are really damaging. You have the apparently undisputed fact that there was the secret server. I mean, it's it builds up very nicely in a way that I think will resonate with the American public. Yeah. Again, because this is political, I think part of the problem with the Mueller investigation was you didn't hear anything from them. Right. And they then they put out a 450 page report that no one was going to read. And I think the difference here is I, I think House Democrats will want to tell this story carefully yep. and methodically, but in chapters and and little information drops so that you don't have to consume it all at once. Each block builds on the one before that they've done. My guess is for a prosecutor, the comparable situation is is how you bring a grand jury along. Yeah. Or 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 even a trial, which is you you want to establish one fact and then you want to add something that makes 
the foundation stronger and, and exactly yeah. you you want to you have to start with your foundation that that call is going to be a foundation and then you have to bring color to it and you have to bring life to it and I think the texts are really helpful around that and and they I would argue they're not to get overly technical but people say well could those texts be used against the president he's not on the texts there is a, a notion under the law called co-conspirator statements and so if A B C and D are all in a conspiracy together A and B text each other that can be used against all four of them. C and D. Yeah. C and D yeah. as well as A and B. So, um, yeah, you want to bring some color, but you want to keep it simple. It's it's a struggle we have in trials as well, especially the Southern District. There were sort of two schools of thought. There was the kitchen sink approach, which is every piece of evidence, everything that reflects poorly upon the defendant. Did he have an, an affair? We can put that out there. Did he use drugs? We can put it out there. Did he, you name it. And then there's the, the thin to win school. And I very quickly, I was raised in the kitchen sink school and very, very quickly converted over to the thin to win. And I, I just, I believe that people, all people have very limited attention spans. And if they don't get it and care about it very quickly, then you've lost them. It is possible that the fight over the subpoenas will be in the courts and unresolved and the Democrats will go forward with impeachment anyway, yeah. given that they have the transcript, given that they have the president's comments, they now have some evidentiary evidence. Right. How does that impact the process? Yeah, there's such an interesting third dimension here, which is timing, because they, they do not have a lot of time. I mean, this is playing out sort of on the same timeline as the Bill Clinton impeachment, but one year later in the election cycle. So they are up against it. Now, one thing about the Supreme Court, there is a way that a case can go direct to the Supreme Court. It's very rare, but it happened in Nixon. And so if, if I'm the Democrats and I serve a subpoena and that and the White House says no, I would think about moving direct to the Supreme Court. You can probably get a case up and down in the Supreme Court briefed and answered maybe a month or so. But but if I'm driving this and it just becomes clear that we're going to be bogged down in courts and we can't wait, go ahead without it. I think they have enough already. I think they want to continue building the case, but you can't wait. You can't get slow dragged. We saw it happen to Nadler. Um, and, and I think it's a big tactical error. And I think Schiff understands that and is not going to let the same happen to him. So yes, if, if you do have to impeach, even while that case is pending in court, do it. So I want to walk through, maybe as a way of wrapping uh, yeah. this up, some of the players and and I want you to give me a sense of their role in this, their exposure, yeah. and what their strategy might be. Sure. Let's start with Bill Barr and the Department oh. of Justice. And you said earlier, none of this will happen because Bill Barr's there. And I'll, I'm going to put words in your mouth, serving as the private attorney for yeah. the president, not the All attorney the for the government. So talk a little bit about DOJ and Barr yeah. and his role here. And how you think the House will deal with him. Yeah. So based on what we know right now, I've not seen evidence that Bill Barr has actually done anything criminal in this case. But of course, he's a witness. Like it or not, he's a witness. Donald Trump mentions him, I think it's five times in the call with Ukraine. The attorney general will reach out to you. Bill Barr and Rudy will reach out to you. So number one is Bill Barr should have recused himself, meaning removed himself from the case right away. I mean, this is ethics 101. You cannot be the attorney and a witness in the same case. But Bill Barr absolutely should have recused himself. And even if DOJ has said, well, Barr didn't actually do these things that Trump's talking about, maybe, maybe not, but too bad he's a witness. Trump dropped his name and now he needs to be asked. He, Barr, needs to be asked. Did you ever talk to Donald Trump about this? Did you ever talk to Rudy about this? Did you ever talk to Ukraine about this? Maybe the answer is no, 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 but he's a witness, so he needs to recuse. I also strongly disagree with his decision not to even open an investigation. I know you cannot charge a sitting president, but you can still investigate and you can charge later. So at the moment, I don't think he has criminal exposure. I think there's still more to be learned about him. And look, if he crosses a line 
you can impeach a non-presidential federal officer, including an attorney general. There's been talk out there, and it's not likely, but if he does something that offends people's notions of justice but is not quite criminal, that could be in play. We had this conversation previously that John Mitchell, the yeah. attorney general, yep. went to jail. Right. Um, that was mostly for the reelect of Nixon. Nixon. There were some connections to the official. Let me move around the government a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Mike Pompeo. Interesting. (laughs) My suspicion antenna went way up when it came out this week that he was on the call after he essentially denied it in his prior interview on TV. There seems to me to be a greater possibility that Pompeo actually did something. If Pompeo dealt with the Ukrainians, if Pompeo said, hey, we're going to need that we're going to need that investigation to be opened again. And the same crimes are in potential crimes are in play here, bribery or, or foreign election aid. So he's got a role that is growing in this. And the combination of more facts coming out and him falsely, essentially denying his knowledge of that call makes me suspicious of him. He'd be an interesting person to flip. And, and he's got political ambitions, so he has reason to yeah. try to come out of this queen. I want to tie Pompeo and Barr and the intel community up in yeah. uh, one little neat bow here. Yeah. What's going on with the investigation of the intelligence community and the sort of re-engineering of Mueller? From a political view, looking at this, they're trying to take Mueller and say that the crime was committed against Trump as opposed to right. – do they have any jeopardy in the context of this whole The investigation of the origins? Yes. I don't think they have jeopardy. I don't think they're doing anything criminal by investigating the origins of Russia. I think it's baldly political. I think it's a – laughable misuse of resources. I mean, you have Bill Barr, we're learning recently, flying all over the globe, getting other countries to give him information on this one investigation. It is extraordinarily rare for an attorney general to be hands-on involved in any case, never mind a case that's not criminal, that's obviously politically loaded, that's backwards looking. I mean, it's such a misuse of resources and it's so telling about where Bill Barr's attention and loyalty lies. Yeah. I mean, the great part about not going to law school, uh, besides not going to law school, (laughs) was that you can have your own legal theory. So you're about to get one of them from me, which is I see what's going on with Barr and um, the Durham investigation, the the Connecticut Connecticut. U.S. attorney, as very similar to what it goes on with is going on with Ukraine, Yeah, which is they have a um, goal, a political goal in mind to discredit uh, the report. Sure. And they're using the leverage of the U.S. government. What does it feel like if you're the Italian president or the Italian (laughs) justice minister and the big United States of America, Bill Barr walks into your office and says, I want to talk to you. I I, I need a favor. I need you to look into (laughs) this. Do me a favor, though. Do me a favor, though. (laughs) So I think there really is a parallel here. It'll be interesting to see if anyone ever gets to that. Right. And it's such a good observation sort of a common sense observation, but it become, it's relevant in the law too, which is one of Trump's defenses here is, well, the, President Zelensky has said he didn't feel pressured. First of all, no victim ever says, I mean, and they felt pressure. I, I've dealt with dozens of mob victims. They always go, no, no, no. I, I wanted to pay him. He's, he was a good person and I had to deal with him. And da, 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 Right. So that's real life. And second of all, it's as in, they shook. Yeah. Well, I used to say to, to a jury, look, this isn't Looney Tunes. Like his knees are not going to be literally knocking together and teeth chattering. But common sense tells you that he's obviously afraid. It's also an inherently uneven bar bargaining situation. Trump even turns that screw a little bit in the call. He says something like, you know, we give you a lot of aid, Ukraine, but then he goes, and it's not reciprocal, meaning you don't give us anything. We give you stuff. So 
that power dynamic is very relevant here. Mike Pence. Ooh, yeah, we're just starting to learn about Mike Pence. I think a lot to be told there. One of the theories is he's a perfect patsy. He's a perfect, right? He almost is like a, if you were to cast a movie character as the sort of a little bit unwitting patsy. But he also, it turns out, has been a little less than truthful in his knowledge of the call. And he's trying to spin whatever day's spin it was of, well, the president's a corruption fighter, which to me does not fly at all. So that's going to get really interesting because when if and when Pence goes into watch the conspiracy theorists, because then it goes from if you remove Trump, Pence takes over, Pence appoints his VP and has to be voted on to you take out. Oh, OK, this is a coup. You're taking out both of them. So who ascends Nancy Pelosi? That is a, a whole nother dimension of political controversy. Yeah, that's that's a podcast that we're going to do in a couple of weeks. Yes, yeah, you know, succession. I feel like as a progressive, I get left out of the conspiracy theory business. <laughs> so I want to get into it and I want to get into it in a big way. And it's going to be Nancy Pelosi's president. But that's just a preview. The succession chart is so interesting. The Secretary of Agriculture is like 14th or something. Yeah. And yeah, it's it could happen. Um, yeah. Let's end with my personal favorite. Uh, and you touched on it a little bit, but let's let's take a minute or two. Uh, Uncle Rudy, uh, oh Mayor Giuliani, uh, who seems to be a central player, who seems to have been running a shadow foreign policy, yeah. uh, which, by the way, is a Logan Act violation, it is, isn't it? But I do know. But, but I, he may, if he's authorized, I guess. I was you know. just looking at the Logan Act. Yeah. So so apparently it's never been used to, to imprison someone in 200 something years. It's, there's too much gray area with the Logan Act, whose people are authorized, to what extent, by who, that kind of thing. But Rudy. Talk about his potential liability. Yeah. So Rudy, I think it's easy to underestimate Rudy or give him too much of the, of the benefit of the doubt because of what a strange character he has become. And there's almost a sense to view him as this clown-like figure because he's so unpredictable and he's so wild and who understands what he's saying. But if you take that out of it, and let's assume he's a smart person, which I think he is, he's a very accomplished prosecutor. His role here is really central. It's hard for him to get out of what his role is. He's really the driver of this whole thing. He's the one who's physically flying to different countries. He's the one who's really pressing on the Department of State. He's the one handing out in Trump hotel folders with a with a little <laughs> fake White, fake House, White House logo <laughs> on it. Uh, information, right? It's got to be a crime, right? Yeah. Listen, it is a it is my favorite federal misdemeanor is misusing the Woodsy the Owl logo. So if, if that is a federal misdemeanor, then misusing the White House logo yeah. has to be something. No, if it was anybody else, they'd get a letter from the White House, a cease and desist letter from the White House <laughs> at, at, counsel's at office. Yeah. At best. Yeah. But I mean, look, Rudy has real exposure here. And he just hired John Sale, who's, yeah. who's a former, big, I think, Southern serious, District. Yeah. yeah, I've actually been on air with him. I, yeah. uh, he's a nice guy. He seems to know what he's doing. But Rudy needs to be really careful here because he has absolute exposure for all the things we talked about before for bribery, especially foreign election aid. Boy, I don't know how you defend Rudy if, if it, the crime is soliciting from a foreign national, check, check, something of value to a campaign. It doesn't have to be your own campaign. It could be your someone else's campaign. How the heck does he wiggle out of it? He would have his only escape there is, well, two. One is it's not a thing of value, which I completely disagree with. And by the way, the next attorney general, whoever that may be, may disagree with. And two, his ultimate escape hatch is Bill Barr. Bill Barr won't charge Rudy Giuliani with anything ever, I'm convinced. But the statute of limitations is five years from now, so 2024. Well, let me let me finish with the statute of limitations. Yeah. Um, what's Donald Trump's 
potential liability after he leaves office, after he's defeated sure. uh, potentially in 2020. So it is clear that a president can be charged after he leaves office. Robert Mueller even said that explicitly, the most careful guy in the world. It's in the DOJ policy memo. It actually says that. There's two two big questions. One is statute of limitations. If the president loses in 2020 and is out of office January 2021, he can be charged with everything going back usually five years. So early 16, that'll include most of the campaign and then his entire term. Uh, The bigger question to me, though, is will a succeeding president, will the next president or attorney general really pull the trigger on this kind of charge? And and I see it both ways. I see the argument of if a person committed crimes and he got a free pass temporarily while he was in office, it still needs to be addressed. It, it leaves a hole in our justice system if we're not addressing a crime simply because if essentially the DOJ policy against indicting a sitting president provides all time immunity. On the other hand, as a practical matter, I think it would be incredibly politically fraught. I mean, imagine somebody else becomes president in 2021 and new attorney general. Are they really going to then federally indict and charge Donald Trump and have a a trial of Donald Trump? Can you imagine the scene that would be? Can you imagine the attention suck that would be? It would dominate the entire first year of this new administration. Um, And I do understand the notion that it just doesn't feel right the way we are as the United States to have somebody defeated or even impeached and then put them on trial. And if you're going to do that, it better be a just almost like a, a violent crime that the person committed, almost something that's just beyond any dispute. So I, I think ultimately it's possible but unlikely Donald Trump gets charged when he's out of office. Is there a possibility that, you know, and these this is a little bit of apples and oranges, but at the end of the Clinton administration, Clinton reached an agreement yeah. with the independent counsel, Robert Ray, yep. you know, who had succeeded uh, Ken Starr, to settle all outstanding issues. Sure. Clinton agreed to give up his law license, was right. probably the centerpiece of that. He was not going to be uh, a lawyer. He was never <laughs> going to practice law again, but he paid a reputational price yep. there. Uh, is, is there a, can you see a scenario where he's been defeated, he's a lame duck president, that a bunch of wise people get in a room and reach some sort of settlement where he admits to things and you know won't be prosecuted. I could see that. I I also think we need to get ready for a slew of pardons here. And I think if the president win or lose on his way out, whether that's in 2021 or 2025 January, I believe he may just he could just blanket pardon Rudy. Look, he could pardon Rudy Rudy anytime, as well as some of the other people we've talked about. The big question will be: Will the president try to pardon himself? And I think that's an open legal question, whether a president can pardon himself. The pardon power itself puts no limitations either way. And it's very broad. On the other hand, it's kind of hard to imagine that that's what the framers really had in mind. So, but I'll be interested to see if he tries and will his successor pardon him. I mean, I think very likely if he's impeached and removed from office, I think Mike Pence would likely pardon him in a Ford Nixon type move. And that would be legal, by the way. People might not like it, but that would be unless there's some sort of illicit exchange involved, but that would be legal. And yeah, could there be some sort of negotiation for a you step down and we don't prosecute you? Sure, that could happen. I mean, that to an extent that happened with Spiro Agnew. And even more recently, when Elliot Spitzer was the governor of New York, I was at Southern District when the office, I was not part of the case, but when colleagues of mine did that case that involved him, he was never charged. But I do know that One of the deals was if this guy contests us, fights us, disputes us in any way, he'll get charged. And one of the agreements that was essentially reached was you shut up, you resign, 
and and you will not be charged. But that kind of calculation does get made. Ellie, thanks for joining us. We always learn a lot and we always walk away with uh, some new questions to ask for the next time you're on. So we appreciate you coming and joining us. Thanks for having me, Joe. My pleasure. Katie's off this week, so I'm going to pinch hit Joe with what else is on your mind. Joe, that was a fascinating conversation with Ellie. I love listening to you guys talk about that. And in the last week, you've published two op-eds, one in the New York Times, one in the Washington Post about impeachment. So let's talk about those. Let's start with the Times. The title of your column was Why I Was Wrong to Oppose Impeachment. Now, our listeners know that you believe and believed, as you wrote, that the most appropriate place to litigate the malfeasance and incompetence of this administration is at the ballot box in 2020. So explain, Joe, what changed? Well, it's pretty simple in my mind. Everything that we had been talking about that broadly is included in the Mueller report um, had to do with the malfeasance crimes uh, that happened in the 2016 election and then the work that was done to obstruct justice and getting to the truth there, you know, the cover-up. That was all done and was all in, you know, in the rearview mirror. What Ukraine and now the various tentacles that are coming out around that makes different is this is about influencing the next election. And I think Americans have a right to know that their elections are free and fair and that their vote counts uh, and they're not influenced by foreign actors. And what the president's doing now is trying to uh, pervert the next election. And that can't stand. So I think as politically risky as impeachment may be for Democrats, they uh, have no choice uh, but to go forward with it because this is no longer just about whether Donald Trump is corrupt and evil. This is about whether our elections are an accurate and true reflection of where the American public is. Joe, you gave your reasons for changing your mind, but you also gave the House Democrats some advice, which they seem to have taken. And I want to go through a little bit of it because I think it's important for people to understand. You said that the Democrats model should be the opposite of what the Republicans did in 1998, which was all about political calculation. You advised the Democrats to make it about the Constitution and the abuse of presidential power. How are they doing so far? I think they're doing very well. The, the the Republicans in 1998 impeached the president because they could, because they had the power to. What I think Nancy Pelosi has done is sort of flip that. She's impeaching the president because she has to, not because she wants to. If she wanted to do it, she would have done it six months ago. The Mueller report and all of the stories around the Mueller report gave her enough to move forward with impeachment. So if this was just about politics – uh, that would have already happened. She has set this up, you know, with the help of Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler and Elijah Cummings as a constitutional duty of Congress, uh, as a check and balance against an out of control president. You also suggested that Speaker Pelosi put Intel Committee Chairman Adam Schiff in the lead, which, again, she seems to have done. Explain why you suggested that. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that I think he is the most uh, skilled prosecutor and communicator among the committee chairs. And again, this is this is not a knock against uh, Elijah Cummings, who's a wonderful speaker, or Jerry Nadler, who has you know been a leader um, in the Judiciary Committee for decades. It really is that you have one shot at this. 
and you you have to lead with your best. You've got to put the best team on the field uh, for the game you're playing. And I think Schiff does that. You know, I suggested in in the op-ed that they do a select committee that Schiff leads. She didn't take my advice, but she did something one better, which is she just basically made Schiff the de facto leader of this. That has two benefits. One is he is the best at this, and I think he's proven that he, he, he is able to prosecute this in a way that removes much of the politics. Second, it allows the Democrats to focus on Ukraine as the primary issue. That is the simplest matter, for I think, for people to digest. It is They have uh, enormous amounts of evidence already, most of which comes out of the president's mouth about what he was doing. Ellie did a great job, I think, of explaining why that behavior was criminal. And so in one decision, she's, she was able to put this, what was, I think, a struggling investigative process over the summer on the right path where now they are on the offensive and they are controlling the narrative. And finally, you suggested that they limit the number of public hearings. Now, when I first read that, it seems a little counterintuitive. If the goal is to move public opinion, why do you think that most of those hearings should be behind closed doors? Because moving public opinion is a driver here. You are not going to get uh, any senators even considering uh, on the Republican side removing the president unless public opinion shifts and they think it's in their interest to to try to remove the president. You've got to play the, the hand you have. And the hand that Democrats have right now is Republicans are very good at making serious things into a circus. And if the investigative process became like a typical Judiciary Committee meeting where they were trying to gather information and then every f five minutes they had to go to some Republican member who started screaming conspiracy theories and foaming at the mouth, people would turn it off. So what I wrote in the piece, and, and it looks like they're doing this, is they're going to build their evidentiary case behind closed doors. They're going to produce pieces of evidence or they're going to tell stories like they did with the texts. And then I think they'll come near the end with maybe a half a dozen of high profile witnesses who will only speak after they've built their case to the public. Anything else just allows the party opposite, again, to make a circus, uh, a joke out of the whole process. You know, I give them very, very high grades for how they've done this. I do think that the die is cast here now. Let's stick with the poker metaphor. The Democrats have a stronger hand than uh, the Republicans and Trump. But you got to play that hand. The strongest hand doesn't always win in a poker game. Uh, and how they execute from now until whatever the end date is uh, remains important. But I think so far they've they have a strong hand and they've played it very smartly. Now, let's talk about the Washington Post column, because this was kind of a case study on how Bill Clinton survived being impeached by the House in a trial in the Senate. And here's what you wrote. We survived the process because we were disciplined about keeping the president out of the impeachment debate. We had an aggressive and experienced legal, communications, and political team. Most important, we never turned on one another. While being in the foxhole was never comfortable, it was comforting to know who was in there with me. Talk about the discipline and talk about the idea that you kept the president out of that debate. Yeah, we've talked a little about this on, in the past on the podcast. We had a very simple strategy, which is the exact opposite of what Donald Trump is doing, which was we felt the most single most important assumption that we had to operate from was the public wouldn't tolerate a distracted president. 
the public wouldn't tolerate a president who was more interested in his own issues than their issues. Um, and it had the added benefit of, you know, making sure that the public knew that every day that the investigation went on and every day that the impeachment hearings went on, the president was in his office doing their work. And it took an enormous amount of discipline. His instinct was to fight back, was to get into the ring. So it took an, an enormous amount of discipline on his part to keep his mouth shut and to focus on health care and jobs and the economy and the budget and things like that. That discipline is totally absent. Uh, with Trump, who is leading the communications charge and is sending a very clear signal to the country, which is his interests are more important than America's interests. And that if his interests are served, well, maybe America's interests will be served, too. I don't think beyond his very core, strong supporters in, in his base, that works. And I think we're going to see an erosion of support. You know, I don't think he'll go down to 25% job approval, but I think when you dig deeper into these polls, you'll find a lot of softness in support for him because he's making this about him, not making it about the country. Now, one of the watchwords from that time was that Clinton was able to compartmentalize. Now, you pointed out that he had personal frustrations and wanted to fight. How were you and how was the White House team and how were the people around him able to keep that from becoming public and again focus on focus on the job well, I'm, I'm starting to laugh here because uh, you're I'm having flashbacks now because one of the ways to do it was to get him to you know provoke him to yell at us and he yelled at us I, I I distinctly remember a meeting where he was yelling at somebody else and it was just it was brutal it was another sort of senior guy but he was just getting pummeled and I remember you know standing in the Oval Office and uh, interrupting the president by saying I agree with him which meant he turned at me and started yelling at me for a good five Literally or ten Literally the flack. But I looked at my colleague. I'm not going to tell you who it is. And I was just like, you owe me one because I just took one because – and, and I, I'm making light of this, but we knew he needed uh, an outlet for his frustration and his anger. But from a political standpoint, we just couldn't have the president present himself as a victim. We, we just didn't think we could survive that. Now – Joe, the one thing the Clinton White House didn't have was the primetime lineup of an entire network devoted to defending you. I worked for NBC News and MSNBC at the time, and let's just say we clearly weren't in the tank for President Clinton. Talk about Fox News and the role in this impeachment battle, because, again, you guys were besieged on all sides. There was nobody out there advocating for you. And that's a very different situation than here. Well, it's funny. You're right about MSNBC. And MSNBC was in its infancy then. It's not the institution that it is now. But Chris Matthews, who at the time was probably their marquee primetime um, uh, and personality. I, and I was a senior producer. Yeah. And, and, I, and, and Chris would have his booker call over to the White House three times a week looking for an interview. And there just was no way. And with Chris, um, it was my view that he wasn't politically tainted. It was the Roman Catholic Chris Matthews that was you appalled that by right. the behavior. Yes. And, I just, and there was no way I was sitting the Baptist president with the Roman Catholic Chris Matthews. But I remember one day um, – I was walking by as um, one of my assistants was taking down the request, which was going to get turned down. And I saw it. I could hear her. And I stopped her. And I took the phone and I said, I want you to give Chris a message that, you know, we will do the show, but under one circumstance. And I said, I want you to take, the, this, take this down word for word. And she said, OK. And I said, Chris, we're willing to do your show 
but it will be the reaction show for the day hell freezes over. And I saw Chris about two days later and from across the room, he started screaming at me and I was like, yeah, we're not doing your show. And I think you know why, but I digress. You know, Roger Ailes set up Fox News for a reason. It was his belief, and he, uh, Gabe Sherman wrote this in his book, that Nixon would have survived if he had a media infrastructure that could uh, reliably defend him no matter what. And that's Fox News for Donald Trump. Uh, and that's why there's this incredible cognitive dissonance in the country right now politically, where I think Monmouth put out a poll last week that said 40% of Republicans don't believe the president called Ukraine's president about investigating Biden. The president has admitted it. The president has bragged about it. And 40% of Republicans don't think he did it. Because they don't hear about it. Because they don't hear about it or they hear Sean Hannity's version of it was all about Hillary Clinton's emails or it was Joe Biden's son who made the call. And it's a political firewall that is supporting Trump in a way that Nixon didn't have. And it has enormous impact on our politics. Enormous. It has deepened and accelerated the polarization in in the country. But in this case, it, it provides Trump with foundational support and an alternative universe to spin his tails. Uh, that Richard Nixon didn't have. Uh, We'll see how strong that is as this plays out. And Joe, the final thing we wanted to talk about today was last week we saw the president admit on television on the South Lawn that he was seeking dirt on Joe Biden in Ukraine and also from China. Now, you and I often talk about messaging, and I was surprised you thought that was tactically a smart thing that they did. Explain. Yeah, I get asked a lot about what should the White House message be? You know, you've been through this. It wasn't even tactically. This was a strategic move. The origins of it were the press conference the president gave last week, uh, where Jeff Mason from Reuters asked him, what did you expect to get from Ukraine's president as part of this deal? And the look on Trump's face was, I can't believe someone asked me that question. All of my answers won't work here. And it's something I've been saying from the beginning, which is, The answers of saying there was no quid pro quo or the whistleblower was partisan or any of the things they were spinning out, none of them were sustainable because you knew based on the limited transcript they put out that all of this stuff was true. So Trump had to find or the people around him had to find a more stable foundation for their messaging. And you saw it last Thursday when he went out in front of the helicopter And he did what he's done a number of times, which is the progression is, I didn't do it. Well, if I did it, it wouldn't be wrong. I did it and I'd do it again. And he's in the phase of, I did it and I'd do it again. Legally, it's uh, a much worse position to be in. But from a political messaging standpoint, it's a stronger, it's a more durable position. Because now, no matter what comes out, and trust me, these texts that came out last week are the tip of the iceberg. We're going to see on a daily basis a methodical case built against the president from the House Democrats. This message, basically, he can continue to repeat. And that if they're smart, which they're smart about some things, they will deliver this on a daily basis, which is there was nothing wrong with what the president did. So this was a strategic but a necessary strategic shift on the president's part. I was surprised that a lot of people saw it somehow as a gaffe 
and something he said in anger that was a mistake. He was not angry uh, on Thursday of last week. He was angry on Wednesday of last week. He said a lot of things, and I think he went. He left that press conference and the the Oval Office um, exchange with the Finnish president and had to reflect and say, it's not working. I need something different. And he has settled on something, and you're going to hear it over and over and over again, which is, I'm going to keep doing this because I'm the president who won't stand for corruption. And when everybody stops laughing at that line, they're going to hear it again and again and again. And that's what political communication is about. It's finding something that's durable, sustainable, simple, and repeatable. And that line, as much of a lie as it is, ticks all of those boxes. Well, Joe, that's all we have time for this week to be continued. Very good. Thanks, Adam. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.